Okay, cool. Um, if y'all would turn to Proverbs 3, chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord, or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son whom he delights. I want to, y'all can be seated. Sorry. Um, I want to thank y'all once again for uh, allowing me to um, teach this morning. This is my second time preaching, and... um, I wanted to kind of go over the nature of the Lord's discipline. It's, it's not something that's frequently talked about. We hear a lot about how the Lord, uh, what the Lord takes pleasure in concerning his children. And he does take pleasure in us. He does love us. We are born again in him, new creations in Christ. But um, there is, there are many verses that speak about the Lord's discipline. And um, I hear a lot of preaching and teaching surrounding the subject of it. Um, and I think, I think it's definitely a hot topic. But I, I want to be careful because this could quickly sound like a law versus grace kind of message, law plus grace message. And that's not what this is. This is discussing how a father deals with his sons and daughters, basically, and how he nurtures us and how he matures and grows us. And uh, again, I don't want to preach a law plus grace message where um, there's a good you that God enjoys and a bad you that God doesn't enjoy. (laughs) And uh, there may be judgment waiting for you at the end kind of a thing, but we don't know. We don't talk about that. I'm not going to do that. Um, What I want to talk about is essentially how the Lord has grows and matures us and disciplines us, but also nurtures us. Um, I want to speak specifically, though, out of Judges um, 6, uh, 1 through 15. So if you all want to turn there, I will turn there too. And we're just going to read verses 1 through 7. Then the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian for seven years. The power of Midian prevailed against Israel because of Midian. The sons of Israel made for themselves dens which were in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites would come up with the Amalekites and the sons of the east and go against them. So they would camp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza, and leave no substance in Israel, as well as no sheep, ox, or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come in like locusts for number. Both they and their camels were innumerable, and they came into the land to devastate it. So Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the sons of Israel cried to the Lord." So, moving forward, 
with the discussion of the Lord's discipline, I want to emphasize clearly the completed work of Christ, that we have been born again, made new, we are new creations in Christ Jesus, our worth is in Him and not in our behaviors. And I can't establish that enough. It doesn't change. Um, I can't speak for all of us, but I want to say many of us grew up in homes where we were disciplined by our parents. Um, I know I was disciplined by my father and, and sometimes by my mother for things that I knew were wrong, but I knew that despite their short displeasure with me, it did not change the fact that I was their son and that they loved me. Um, I remember when I was very little being spanked, and immediately after, I would receive an embrace from whoever it was spanking me, either my mom or my dad. Um, All the discipline that I had received, it was out of love, a heart of love, and a heart that delighted in, in their child. And I remember the, uh, the terror of when I would misbehave. And my mother would say to me, you have disobeyed. And I told your father that he will deal with you when he gets home. And uh, that was always terrifying. Not because, you know, that his spankings were so severe or so awful. I think it was just the, uh, the dread of impending spanking doom that was often worse than the actual punishment itself. <laughs> but, you know, it... It was out of a heart of love I, that my father would discipline me. And, you know, even Jesus speaks to this, that, you know, we respected our fathers for disciplining us um, and basically nurturing us in the way that we should go. Um, if you want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Hebrews twelve six. And I have it bookmarked, so I'm like way faster. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline, for the moment, seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So discipline is a real thing. And I think what can happen a lot when we talk about Uh, how the Lord has redeemed us and made us new. This is true, but he also deals with us as children. And where we solely just move aside to, you know, we we have been perfected in Christ and all these things, and and that is true, I think what can happen is that sometimes it can seem like the Lord is just apathetic to our behaviors. And that's not true at all. Um, And the Gospels and, and the writers... Uh, of the entire New Testament, 
the messages to the church were ones of exhortation, were ones of, uh, of discipline and instruction uh, concerning behaviors. But the approach for all of those books, um, and this is where I think we get off track, because if we start with what are you doing wrong, we've started with the law. We should be starting with who Christ is and what he has done first in our hearts before we move forward. And what I mean is, is that all the books that are written to the Philippians, the Colossians, they address all of them as saints. They start first in their identity and who they are, and then they move on to addressing behavior. And that is the only way, I think, to properly address behavior, because otherwise it comes across as law rather than what is most suited for the believer to participate in. So we just read Judges 6, 1 through 7. Israel is being oppressed. The Midianites are stealing all their crops and all their livestock. Um, And Israel is in cycle. Um, Throughout Judges and onward, they were impressed by you know, the book of Judges, all the way to Samuel, they were oppressed by Canaanites, Moabites, Edomites, Midianites, Ammonites, and Philistines. And the Midianites are essentially uh, parasites. Um, sorry, I had to do that. Um, because they are stealing all of Israel's gain, essentially. Um, but we see this cycle throughout the entire book of Judges. It's Israel turns from God and serves idols. God turns Israel over to oppression, typically by other nations. Israel turns to God and cries for help. God raises a judge to deliver them. This happens over and over again. And I think, you know, we can become critical of Israel and their frequent failings. I know uh, I have in the past where it's been, you know, well, don't they get it? I mean, you know, I, I would think they would get it by now. But I think if we're honest with ourselves, and you know, any believer who's walked along with the Lord, I don't think they're too unfamiliar with this pattern in their own personal lives. Uh, I know I'm not. Um, we are familiar with this cycle, and um, I will continue to elaborate that further. Um, so in the nature of you know, dealing with the discipline of the Lord, for me, um, I know that where I have become oppressed and subjugated to the forces around me where I feel manipulated by uh, either the powers of be or even just people around me where my, where my uh, good and my well-being are fixed in uh, others or certain behaviors or certain outcomes, I know essentially that I have made an idol out of those things. And that's a hard thing to recognize, and it sounds... Uh, nitpicky, but it, it really is not, that there is so much to say yes to other than Christ. And when we say yes to any of those other things, we say no to him. And I think that's the approach of the enemy. But for me personally, an idol is anything that I regard as life other than Jesus Christ. And again, like I've said, this is a cycle that I think we're, we're all familiar with. And the, these things have occurred in scripture, and the Lord has used them as an example for us. Um, I want you to turn to, give me a second, I have a lot of papers here. Okay, 
uh, 1 Corinthians 10.6. Now these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example. And they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So, I used to read these verses, uh, particularly in the New Testament, and I would be completely fearful for my life because all of them, you know, the examples that, that Paul uses for the consequence of living to the flesh, they're all death. Um, and you can see that anytime he talks about the flesh, or the nature of Israel and how the Lord disciplined them, they were slain in the wilderness for the most part. Um, but for us, it's no longer a physical reality. It's moved into a spiritual one. That wherein I have made idols elsewhere, I have invited death into my own life. And I now am subject to those other forces around me. And they minister only death to me. And, you know, Paul says a mind of flesh is death. And when we walk in the flesh, it only reaps death in our own lives. And, you know, death is anything, I think, that brings us to a complete state of hopelessness. And um, I know this has been true in my life where I have looked to other things and um, the Lord has disciplined me not necessarily with Canaanites and Moabites and all those things, but with invisible things, where anytime I look to something other than Christ, outside forces always push me back into the narrow way. And it's because I can't live any other way except by his life, because that's what we were made for. And I think when you know everything in this world wants us to convince us that we have a different life other than Christ. So, Israel is being oppressed. Israel is in cycle. And again, I think we can relate to that. We can relate to the cycle of Israel. Um, that we turn from the Lord, we serve idols, and then because of this unbelief, uh, we experience pain. And I believe that is the discipline of the Lord. Um, then, okay, so God turns... Israel over to oppression. Israel turns to God and cries for help, and God raises a judge to deliver him. Um, if you want to go ahead and turn to Judges uh, 6, 7 through 10 now, and I'll go ahead and read that. Now it came about when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord on the count of Midian, that the Lord sent a prophet to the sons of Israel, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, 
I was, I, it was I who brought you up from Egypt and brought you out from the house of slavery. I delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians and the hands of all your oppressors and dispossessed them before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not obeyed me. And so for us, again, Israel's, God's grievance against Israel is not that they can't cross their I's and dot their T's, but because they do not uh, cling to him as their salvation. Um, He provided a sacrificial system for that, for their errors, for their sins, but they do not cleave to him for that. They start to serve other idols and they live in fear of those idols. And the Lord says, you have not obeyed me. He says, I am the Lord your God, and you shall not fear the gods. And he says, the other gods, and he says, you have not obeyed me in this aspect, meaning you have turned to other gods. You've made other gods your life. You have made, and you know, we don't, we don't worship uh, deities in the, in the images of animals and serpents and things like that. But I think we do have gods in this present day reality that maybe not directly voiced as this is whom you should serve they are still um i think subtly uh in our own hearts uh put on a pedestal um and i think you know if you look in in the uh the education system as great as that is you know i believe the message that they're saying though is, is that through education, you will achieve a better, uh, a better measure of life, that you will have life in abundance if you get an education. And I think, you know, they're not saying that directly, but I think that can be the message sometimes uh, indirectly applied in our own hearts. And, you know, just, you know, finances or um, how we make money and the job and all those things, all of them apply or imply that, there is something out there that determines life for me. And any time I step aside and say, you're right, and I agree with those things, instead of taking those thoughts captive to Christ, I have now entered into bondage concerning those things. So now the job, if it goes well, my life goes well. And if the job goes poorly, my life goes poorly. And the Lord says, you shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not obeyed me. And so the Lord, this is how the Lord approaches us. He approaches us with, this is what I have done. I have delivered you from bondage. And taking that from Old Testament to New Testament, the Lord, when he speaks to me, and when I have entered into idolatry, and I'm in a rut, and I'm mad because I can't serve my idols perfectly, he comes to me and says, this is what I've done. I have delivered you out of bondage. And when he says those things, it seems so um, unsatisfactory because we're in a place of flesh. We see the immediate need and we're like, yeah, but this doesn't help me in my situation. This doesn't fix the problem that I have. And the Lord says, I have delivered you. I brought you out of bondage. You have been made a new creation in Christ. You've been brought into newness of life. And we're like, "Uh, that's great. But these idols, they're not working, you know. Um, I think that can immediately, for me at least, has been um, the record when I have when I've fallen into that kind of thinking. Um, so 
It's simply an idol today, the gods of today. It's simply anything I believe holds life for me other than Christ. And again, it's a subtle thing because it's not directly taught. Like somebody doesn't come up to you, a salesman doesn't come up to you and says, hey, this is life, come get it. You know, Christ, no, this is life though, come get it. Um, nobody actually does that. But it's advertised everywhere, you know? Life is drinking the perfect beer and, and having the perfect girl and having the perfect job and having a house and property and, and all this different stuff. And, uh, you know, it's, it's advertised uh, everywhere as life. And I think that um, it can be very difficult sometimes uh, combating those things. But we combat those things not from our own determination to sift out what is true and what is not true, we combat those things by saying, no, Christ is true, and I will rest in him. He is my foundation. He is my life. And that is how we combat those ideals, those idols that people throw at us. We say, no, my life isn't in those things. My life is in Christ. And again, just to give you by way of an example, if I'm working uh, you know, at HEB, which I do, um, if I'm working at HEB and, you know, I've made a mistake, it's kind of a bonehead move, and I'm embarrassed, you know, and what's worse is I have unbalanced people around me who, you know, fly off the handle maybe at those, you know, those very, uh, you know, minor uh, mistakes that might be made, and at that point I have a choice to make. Either I can enter into... Uh, the fretting and the anxiety that comes with believing that my worth and value are defined by my coworkers and how smart they think I am, or I can believe that my worth and value is defined by Christ and how he defines me. Um, and I have that choice. It's right there in front of me. And so I can step into that and I can be fretful and anxious and make excuses and and they're, you know, they're doing this, and I'm doing this, and, you know, but that isn't, you know, that isn't ministry, and it certainly doesn't help me at all to participate in that. Um, so all of us are given this choice, I think, when approached with conflicts, uh, when approached with what I like to call the deficit, and that is when life comes to you and says, you know, I don't have what you might think you need here. What do, we re what do we do in response to that deficit? Do we run to Christ immediately, or do we say, oh, well, I need to serve this idol more perfectly. I need to serve this better, that there might not be a deficit. And that is, I think, when life comes at us, and we choose to say, oh, I need to serve this better. I need to serve this idol perfectly. I think... In fact, in my own life, I know that, that that oppression, that subjugation, that fear, that dread, all those things are a byproduct of unbelief. And Israel, and, and why I'm talking about Judges 6 is because Israel is, is a picture of that right now, is that they have chosen to cling to and cleave to other idols, and they are oppressed, and that they are uh, distraught, and they're brought to a place where they say they cry out to the Lord. And the Lord comes to them in a prophet and says, I am the Lord your God. I told you not to fear these other gods. I am the Lord your God. 
but you have not obeyed me. And the Lord approaches us the same way. And he doesn't come with us, come to us with persuasive argument. He comes to us with, this is me, and you can believe in me. You can trust in me. He doesn't come, with us with a, come to us with a PowerPoint plan, persuasive words, and, and bullet points that says, this is what you must do in order that you might have life. He says, I am life. And so anytime in our hearts, and it is a still and it is a quiet voice that says, I am sufficient. Trust in me. And I think a lot of times that voice is ignored. Um, and we say, well, yeah, but the house is on fire kind of a thing. And, you know, my job's not going well. Or, you know, the kids aren't behaving. I don't have kids. Um, you know, the finances are not in order. Things like that. Um, and again, he says, only one thing is necessary, that you trust in me. And we say, how can that be enough? And it's because we have looked to other things as life. And we say, how could it be enough? Because, you know, this is life for me. Having a good job, you know, a good marriage, um, people that like me, you know, this is life for me. How can you say that you are enough? And how can I believe and trust that you are going to be enough for me? Um, so, moving on. And this is, this is one of my favorite parts because it's, it's almost comedic, um, though it is sad, okay? Um, Gideon is visited. Uh, if you want to read um, Judges 6, 11 through 12. Now, just to give you kind of a backdrop, um, Gideon is taking wheat from the field, and he is threshing it, not in the field, which was normally done, but he's taking it to his father's wine press. Um, and uh, at, in Jerusalem, um, the Israelites, the way they had their wine presses is they were basically essentially big pits in the ground, and um, they, they would stick their feet in, of course, it was really unsanitary, and they would, you know, tromp out the grapes, and the juices would come flowing through vats that they had on either sides, but it was made of stone, um, and they were big pits. So Gideon is taking the wheat to thresh it out in these pits because the last thing, you know, in his mind, and I like to think that this was strategic, was that the Midianites are not going to think, you know, after Israel being impoverished and, you know, Israel's not going to have the wherewithal to have vineyards, essentially. So Gideon is being, I think, strategic here in taking the wheat to the wine press because the Midianites wouldn't think to look there for wheat, basically. And so Gideon is, is threshing the wheat in this wine press, and he's in the pit. So I just imagine, like, if you were looking out and in, in the field and you just see, like, this, this wheat in his hands just doing this, this business. And so, verse 11. Then the Lord came and sat under the oak that was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizrite. I can't say that. Abizrite. As his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press in order to save it from the Midianites. So the Lord shows up and he's sitting under an oak tree and he's just watching Gideon thresh the wheat, or at least he's probably seeing just the top of the wheat going up and down like this in this pit. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Oh, Gideon, I'm sorry about 
what's going on. And, you know, you're not really a man of courage, but we have a PowerPoint here, and we're going to walk you through just the steps that you need in order that you might save the Israel's, Israelites from the hands of the Midianites. Oh, wait, that's not what he says. He says, The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. And so it's just, it's almost comedic. Like Gideon is hiding from the Midianites and he's threshing wheat. And I just imagine his head popping up like a gopher being like, who said that? You know? Um, (laughs) The Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. And this comes back to my uh, original point was that the Lord always starts with who we are before he addresses behavior. And as believers in our own lives, that's where we need to start also. Not by obsessing on what we're doing wrong or the ruts that we have in the flesh, but by looking to him and realizing we have been cleansed, we have been perfected, we have been made new. And out of that faith comes the fruit of right standing and right behavior with God in our deeds and actions. But it only comes as we regard Christ solely sufficient in all areas of our lives. And we can have little idols off here and there, but the Lord is going to purge out every single one of those. And he's going to bring oppression and conflict, not necessarily by his hand, but it is the natural result of unbelief that we are to be oppressed and driven by anything that is not Christ. Um, Greetings, (laughs) the Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. And again, like when Paul is addressing and writing letters, and and not just Paul, but, um, you know, John and Jude and Peter, when they're writing letters of instruction to the children of God, it always starts with who you are in Christ, the richness that you have in him, the satisfaction that you have in him. But a lot of people skip over that and just say, hey, this is what Paul doesn't like, or this is what God doesn't like. This is what he hates, and this is what I see that he hates. So uh, we need to get busy. And a lot of people start that way, rather than starting first from a place of faith that says, I have been made new. And as his children, I think the Lord, again, and I want to be careful here, the Lord disciplines those he loves. And the Lord delights and takes pleasures, pleasure in us. But he may not always delight in our behavior. And that's a difficult pill to swallow, I think, that we can behaving, we could be behaving in a way that is displeasing to the Lord. But, you know, when I would hear messages like that, I would get in such, um, such a, I guess, frantic mode where I was like, okay, I got to find out what, you know, what's in my own life. I don't want to be displeasing to God, you know, And immediately I would fall under law and I would try to sift out for myself what I need to know so that I could perform perform perfectly before God. That's why talking about discipline is so difficult. Excuse me, difficult. It's because we take it and we run with it instead of taking it to the throne of grace and realizing that discipline is the action that a father takes with his child. And I've seen, uh, you know, in my own life with my own parents, Uh, but also in my brothers and sisters and how they've dealt with their children. When they misbehave, they don't come at them in wrath. And, you know, when 
when disciplining, a good parent will come at them not in anger of the flesh, but in a determination to show them Christ in the moment. And that doesn't mean mamby-pamby. That just means um, showing them Jesus is the best thing for them. And sometimes that is like driving the... the uh, <laughs> like driving the uh, tax collectors out of the temple, <laughs> I think. Um, but in all of this, it is a heart of love. I think that is the most important thing to remember. And again, so, I'm sorry, I keep going in circles here. Um, o valiant warrior, he addresses us according to who we are, not based in, again, Gideon is not a valiant warrior. He hasn't done any great feats, at least that have been recorded and given his track record all throughout Judges 6, 7, and 8, he's not a very outspoken, uh, courageous guy. In fact, everything leads to the contrary. He's very naive, he's very untrusting, and he goes forward in complete timidity. And so much so that the Lord has to allow, and he's so merciful to allow situations that will bolster his faith just so he can step forward in what the Lord has called him to do. Um, so he's not a great warrior. And so essentially what the Lord is doing here is he's addressing him by who he is. He's addressing him by what he's done. And again, in the verses before that, it was I who delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians, from the hands of your oppressors, and dispossessed them before you and gave you their land. He is, he is telling Gideon, basically, that I am... And because I am, you shall be. And that's what he says to us also. I am, I am, you shall be. And so, uh, verses 13. I don't want to lose track here. Okay, yeah. Judges 6, 13. Then Gideon said to him, Oh, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. And again, reflecting on this verse in my own life, I know that there have been many a times when the Lord says, I am enough. And he comes to me and he calls me to faith and he says, I am sufficient. And I say, oh, Lord, if you are sufficient, why am I so miserable? And it, this is the response that Gideon has also is, is, Lord, if you are sufficient, then why is my job going poorly? Why is my marriage going poorly? Why, why don't, you know, why, why, why are the kids being difficult? Um, these examples, um, you know, why is, why is bad befalling us? And the Lord doesn't even go there with him, but he doesn't go there with us either. He says, here I am. I'm enough. And that is in itself the remedy um, for the problem. But again, Israel and Gideon's problem, and again, I think Gideon um, was a very fresh or new believer in, in God, and at least following his way. He knew superficially about God, maybe in rumors or tales, but Israel is at this time serving the gods of uh, the Amorites and the Midianites. 
um, Baal and uh, Asherah. And so he has a very small knowledge, I think, of the way of the Lord. And that's why he asks. He's like, well, if God's with us, then why are things so terrible? And I think we can ask the same question when we have made other things our idols. And we say, well, if the Lord is with us, then why isn't the ministry going so well? Why isn't this going so well? You know, why don't I have life here, Father? You know, and the Lord's not going to empower our idols to be what only he can be. That's completely contrary to his character. I'm still in bondage because I hold idols in my heart. I'm living in the discipline of the Lord. And then his response in verse 14. The Lord looked at him and said, Go in this your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? He doesn't say, Go in this your strength, or this, comma, your strength, comma, and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. He says, go in this, your strength, have I not sent you? And again, the Lord doesn't come at us with a step-by-step for how he's going to work. He just says, have I not sent you? Am I not enough? He asks us the question, and he calls us to action, not action that we would come up through strategy, but action of faith, that we have to say, the Lord is sufficient for me. Um, So moving forward, we were disciplined by our fathers, but it was still us that would join our fathers at the table. It wasn't any of the neighbor's kids. It wasn't anybody else. No matter how perfect the neighbor's kids were, It wasn't them that was invited to supper for nourishment at the end of the evening. It was always us. And and you may have guessed, but that's beside the point. Uh, We are his children and have been brought into sonship by virtue of Christ's completed work. But I do not think that because we have been made perfect, as true as that is, that God has somehow suddenly become apathetic towards our wrong behaviors. And again... We are his, right? And we read verses like Romans 8, 28. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. So this isn't a call to fear. This isn't a call to um, be afraid. This is a call to realize just how completely worked in we are into the plan of the Lord. That even in my failings and in his discipline... He works it out for good, and the good is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The law never fixed anybody. So what is discipline? And I I wrote this out. Discipline is the revelation of what is foreign to you. It is the realization of what does not suit you, the child of God. It is the pain that comes with the thorns and thistles. It is the emptiness that comes from seeking life apart from him. It's the shame that comes when you have discerned your value by something other than his worth. It's the hopelessness that comes when you have made something besides him your hope. It's the stress that comes when something or someone else has been made your rest. It's the pain that comes when you have made something besides him your comfort. I could go on. 
But the point is, the discipline of the Lord for the child of God, and this, is sounds, this sounds a little harsh, but it's death. It's death in your finances, death in the marriage, death in job. And this is not something that the Lord imposes on us. This is the natural result of unbelief. These things were the result of unbelief in Israel. And the Lord even brought up things to condition them and discipline. But he allowed those things. He didn't initiate evil. He allows evil where there is unbelief. That we might be driven inward towards Christ, towards the riches within. And that's, that, I think, is a hard thing to swallow. Romans 8.13, For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So if you are living according to the flesh, the end result is death for you. And not physical death so much, but though it could lead to that. Um, it is death in, 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 our, in our hopes, in our peace, in our joy. It's death in all those things. When we refuse him, we subjugate ourselves to the enemies around us. Our enemies are no longer the Moabites, the Canaanites, Midianites, but the world, the flesh, and the devil. So we no longer have physical enemies, guys with swords and torches and things like that coming to take our stuff. Though I think, you know, I would many times rather prefer something physical to fight than the, you know, the metaphysical, the things behind it. Because, you know, that is something that I can see. It's something tangible that I can attack. But what I can attack is weakness in my own life, my own blunders, my own failings. You know, um, the things that uh, oppress me are not so much uh, outward so much as inward. But all these things Christ has conquered already. And that's why he says we are more than conquerors for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are more than conquerors in him. Greetings, O valiant warrior, you know. And again, like you hear it and you're like, I don't know about that. We take it by faith. We realize that the Lord is our life, that he is enough, that he is sufficient. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness and the heavenly places. Again, Israel's grievances towards God were not just because they couldn't keep the law. God gave them the sacrificial system for that. Their sin was a byproduct of the mother of sin, which is unbelief. And we know this, that in all the fruits of our behaviors, the behaviors of sin, that is, it is a result of unbelief. It is a result of regarding something higher, putting something else on the throne of our hearts, rather than allowing God to be God in our hearts. Again, therefore, Romans 8, 1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I was disciplined by my parents, but I was never thrown out. I was never completely abandoned. I was never rejected by them. They addressed a behavior in me that was contrary, and they brought about the revelation of how contrary that behavior was to me through spanking or something of that sort. Not always through spanking. But those things served as a revelation for me that those things did not suit me as their child. And that's what discipline is. It is a refinement 
for the child of God. It is the maturation pro process that the Lord has put us in because he works all things together for good. So I wanted to talk about this because I'd read about the discipline of the Lord and I'd kind of get into this, this, um, this, dual, this duality kind of system where I'm the good me and I'm the bad me kind of thing. That's not the truth. The truth is, is I'm a child of God. I have been redeemed. I've been made new in him. And the Lord allows for oppression when we enter into unbelief to drive us back to what we were made for. That is the truth of discipline. It is anything, it is a revelation of what is foreign to you. It's like a thorn in your side. It doesn't belong, and it's painful. It is the emptiness that comes from seeking life apart from him. It's the shame that comes when you have discerned your value by something other than his worth. The hopelessness that comes when you have made something besides him your hope. The stress that comes when you have made something else your rest besides him. And I know I'm, I sound like a parrot because I'm rereading this. But I think that is so important to drive home. So I'm not going to go through the whole book of, um, or at least this chapter of Judges. Um, I will say, speaking about Gideon, he's a, a timid man. He's unbelieving. A lot of people try to spiritualize the sign of the fleece and even uh, make it as an application that believers can apply in their own lives as a way of, and what I like to call as a way of divination, and seeing which way the Lord would have us go. But the will of God has been made plain. The will of God for us in our lives is not in any direction right or left. It is in obedience to Christ. And obedience is not following all the precepts of the law, though that is the fruit. Obedience is belief and soul trust in the abundance and the satisfaction of Christ. So this message, when I'm talking about discipline, this is not the time to unpack dirty laundry and to go over everything you did wrong these past couple of days or these moments. It is a time to put that away, to forget what lies behind and embrace him, our salvation, and walk in that. Because in doing so, we enable the Spirit's life and his fruit to live and be active in our own hearts. It is not something that we can do ourselves. Again, greetings, O valiant warrior. It is not you, but it is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It is a call to faith. And discipline comes when I don't realize that Christ's grace is sufficient for me. And that, I think, is a byproduct of idolatry, where we've made something else God in our own hearts. Uh, I want you to turn with me to Philippians 3, 7 through 16. Seven through sixteen. Three, seven through sixteen. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Have you come to the place in your heart where you count all things as lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ? 
for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, and may be found in him, not having righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already attained it or have already become perfect. And this is so neat, the resurrection from the dead. This is the resurrection living life in spite of the death around me in the world, the flesh, the devil. Again, the mind of flesh is death. And when we live by faith, we obtain resurrection life moment by moment. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward for what lies ahead. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude, and if anything you have different attitude, God will reveal this to you also. However, let us keep living by the same standard to which we have attained. Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward towards what lies ahead. Christ lies ahead. Christ is the goal. Forget what lies behind. The only reason why we would be holding on to the sin in our own hearts and lamenting before God about our sin and the things of that nature is because somewhere else we have made life where we shouldn't have. That is the only reason why we keep track of those things is because it's not about the grace of God solely in our own hearts. It's about the grace of this other idol over here. And we can't serve it perfectly. And so, you know, it it almost is a self-perpetuating situation where because I have seen a deficit and regard as life elsewhere, and I see that as a deficit, the Lord says, my grace is sufficient for you. And I say, no, it's not because I need this solved as soon as possible. And that's not the truth. He is our life. He is sufficient. And the charge I have for you today is let go of what lies behind and put your eyes upon Jesus. Make him the goal. Make him your life. See him as your life, because that's the truth. That is what you're made for. And discipline, again, is coming to the point of realizing that I wasn't made for anything else. And that's what Israel is coming to in the book of Judges. And again, they're in cycle over and over again, and it is a hard time. But in all of this, we have this promise that the Lord works it all together for good. I'm going to go ahead and pray.